0: Alright, so this morning we're going to be looking in Ecclesiastes four. Ecclesiastes four, one through sixteen. So again, we're doing a whole chapter. And I made it last time, so I have a have a good feeling about this morning. Now, Ecclesiastes four, one through sixteen. Starting in verse 1, then I looked again at all the acts of oppression, which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed who has never seen the evil activity which is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a a son or a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three uh, strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom, I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after wind. So this morning we're going to be looking at several different different topics here in Ecclesiastes 4. First, you have verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3 is a continuation of where we ended last week, which picks up again the theme of oppression, the oppression of those downtrodden by wicked oppressors. Second, you have verses 4 through 6, which deals with rivalry and strife with neighbors. Verses 7 through 12 deal with isolation and loneliness, self-inflicted isolation and loneliness. And finally verses 13 through 15 deal with wisdom and folly and we've heard Solomon talk about wisdom and folly and he will continue to talk about wisdom and folly as we go through Ecclesiastes. Each of these topics are applications of what Solomon has been discussing thus far throughout the book of Ecclesiastes namely life under the sun, and the effects of the fall upon humanity and we're going to see this as we go through this passage this uh, chapter four how many times he says under the sun and again that's the key to understanding ecclesiastes life under the sun under the curse under the fall of man so let's begin looking here at verses one through three he says then i looked again at all the acts of oppression which we being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I remember uh, the first time reading this, uh, this text, how difficult it was for me to wrap my head around a man who I consider a, a Christian man, a man who has gone through a lot of things, who has backslidden at times, fallen away somewhat, but the Lord, I believe, restored him. That he could say such a thing as, Better is the man who had never been born. It's kind of tough to hear. But what he's picking up on is, as I said, what we talked about last week, which was the theme of oppression. In chapter 3, 16 through 22, Solomon discussed the present reality of man under the sun. He said that God had tested man, and it was discovered that they are but beasts. And by that, he didn't mean, again, ontologically, that we are the same as beasts because we are made in the image of God. However, what he's pointing out is that we act more like animals than we do like our creator. We devour one another. We do things for our own sake, for our own self-interest. We self-indulge, we're self-centered instead of being like our creator. It's because of this that there is continuing wickedness on this earth under the sun. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and that is the testimony of Romans 1. Everyone does what is in their best interest. So, naturally, one of the outcomes of such a worldview, such a mindset, is oppression. So, it should come to no surprise that people act this way. Because fallen humanity is consumed with self, and acts in his or her own best interest to the exclusion of others, we should expect to see oppression. That is a natural outcome of such a worldview. This is a product of a worldly philosophy that centers on self rather than the creator and others. In Lesson 4, one of the worldly philosophies we examined was hedonism. And hedonism is the philosophy, again, that the chief end of man is not to glorify God, but is to do whatever brings you the most happiness. That is the philosophy of hedonism. Whatever makes you happy, that is what you should do. And I, I, noticed, I noted in that lesson that the logical end of hedonism is tyranny, when, when one does all that he can to make himself happy to the detriment of others, he will necessarily become a tyrant, and he will necessarily oppress those who do not live according to his own world view. And this, this happens in every sphere of life, and Solomon noted that last week. Uh, he talked about those in authority, those in leadership. When a civil magistrate forsakes God's law and acts as if he is God himself, freedom is lost and tyranny reigns. When an elder imposes upon a people what God himself does not impose upon a people, freedom is lost and tyranny reigns. When a family head mistreats his wife and his children, tyranny reigns and they are oppressed. See, what we've got to understand that the only way that we can know freedom is to know Christ and to live according to Christ. Christ is freedom, and anything other than Christ will always be tyranny. All throughout Scripture, we read how much the Lord despises tyranny, he, he hates it and how much he vindicates the oppressed. God commanded in Zechariah 7, verses 9 and 10, he said, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion, each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. That is what the Lord says to do. And I love the fact that the Lord himself says, the Lord of hosts said this. What does the Lord of hosts mean? The Lord of armies. So there's this, there's this notion when you read this, he's telling you to dispense true justice. The Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, because he is the vindicator. You have in Proverbs 14.31, says, Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors them. It is an insult to the maker to be a tyrant, not to live according to God and his law. As it pertains to God's vindication of the oppressed, take Psalm 9, verses 7 through 9 as an example. It says, But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment and he will judge the world in righteousness he will execute judgment for the peoples with equity the lord will also be a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble and all throughout scripture you see this notion especially in the old testament that god is the stronghold is the fortress for those who are oppressed especially his people who were continuously oppressed throughout history He is the great vindicator. So because fallen humanity does what is in his own best interest, the Lord again warns and warns that to be like this is an insult to the creator. And this is what Solomon sees as he examines life under the sun. And I think if we examine life under the sun as Solomon did, we would see the exact same thing. He points out that there is no one to comfort the oppressed. There's, there's no one who, who will come alongside them. And why is that? Well, it could be that it is the result of man being selfish or barbarous. He just doesn't care. He's doing what's in his own best interest. Or it could be that siding with those who are oppressed could lead that person to suffer from oppression. And this was a real issue in in many different wars. You had a a wicked ruler who did all sorts of atrocities, and then, uh, specifically thinking of World War II, and then after that, you had all these commanders and generals come before uh, trials and have to stand and give account of their wickedness, and they would often say, Oh, well, I was made to do it. I didn't want to do it, but I was made to do it. So, regardless of the Oppression is oppression, tyranny is tyranny, wickedness is wickedness. Regardless of the reason, it doesn't change the fact that people can and do become oppressed by those who rule over them. And such oppression can be so bad that it leads one to complete misery, which is why Solomon deems here that it is better to to die than to suffer at the hands of the wicked, even better yet, those who have never been born. Now this may be hard to to hear, to understand, but remember he again is speaking of life under the sun, life in the curse. And last week we said that Solomon realized that there was wickedness where there should be righteousness, there there was injustice where there should be righteousness. So in Solomon's mind, the ultimate hope is God's perfect and complete justice Over the wicked and the vindication of the righteous that was his point in the last chapter the Lord alone can can truly and completely and rightly undo the wickedness of man he is the one who vindicates and the wickedness under the sun can drive a man to complete despair but the Lord is the stronghold of the oppressed. Now, I want you to think about it from, from a worldly worldview. Life as it is now is plagued with wickedness. Imagine being an, an unbeliever living in a world where there is so much wickedness and not understanding that there is one who will dispense justice with equity, who will right every wrong. The unbeliever can really have no objective, concrete reason for a universal righting of wrongs. He he can recognize that there are wrongs, but if there is nothing else, there is no righting of wrongs. Jay Adams remarks on this point. He says, Considering the the plight of of the oppressed, who can find no relief in the present life, apart from taking into consideration the joys of the Christian faith, his conclusion stands, there is no way in which the unbeliever can accept living under oppression. But the believer, as has been demonstrated throughout the ages, he has something more than a comforter to which to turn. He has no comforter. The wickedness of men is so heinous that Solomon says it is better to never be born than to suffer at the hands of such tyranny. And the point he's making there is that apart from Christ, there is no hope against oppression, a t- tyranny. There is no righting of wrongs. How difficult of a life would that be? Thankfully, we don't live in such a world. We live in such a world where we do have a king, we do have a great comforter, and we do have the vindicator of the oppressed and the one who does what is righteous, our Lord. Continuing on in verses four through six, you have the the struggle of rivalry. Solomon writes I have seen that every labor and every skill which has been done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. So here, we can relate this back to what we were just talking about, oppression. Such rivalry mentioned here breeds envy and resentment a person who pursues his work with all his might is despised by the the wicked man who seeks to take it for himself. Thus, oppression and unfair treatment can happen. When one man has something that the other man wants, envy, resentment, come forth, thus oppression, slander, persecution, these are the results of life under the sun. A person who pursues work with all of his might is despised by the wicked man. And instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, the wicked man hates his fellow man for his success. And also the person becomes consumed with envy and jealousy. That person will weary himself with work until he overtakes the other. Thus both will be robbed of joy. So you have these, these two men, the, the one man who just labors and labors and labors for things, and the other man who's, who becomes jealous of his success. and He starts trying to oppress the other man, but then he also tries to strive the same way. And he wearies himself. And then the one who's being oppressed is wearied. And then no one has joy or happiness in God's providence. The other extreme is in verse 5. The fool runs in the opposite direction. The fool becomes careless and idle. He becomes no use to himself or anyone else. Scripture says that he, he folds his hands as if to be done with the matter. Who cares? You, don't, you just fold your hands. Who, what does it matter? This, too, is a godless reaction. One commentator says of this man that He wastes his substance and brings upon himself poverty. So you've got the two men, the man who strives really hard, the the one who becomes jealous, and then the one who just gives up because he can't have what others have, and he becomes useless. So which is better? Is it better to work tirelessly and be envied while possibly suffering oppression Or to be lazy? Neither, right? We don't want to to go through either of those things. We know from Scripture that to be lazy is a sin. Proverbs 6, 9 through 11 says, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So you hear the the folding of the hands to rest, the, the person who... Uh, idolizes rest it says your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man inverse uh, i mean i'm sorry in second thessalonians we're told that a man who does not work shall not eat especially pertinent to those who are heads of households paul condemns the lazy person in first timothy uh, five verse eight saying that if anyone does not provide for his own, he is worse than an unbeliever. Now, that's incredibly strong language. So that's the lazy man. What about the former? What about the man who, who strives with all of his might, thus breeding envy and jealousy? Well, certainly isn't good to bring about envy and, and jealousy, And it's not good to work tirelessly as we've seen through Ecclesiastes. Even if the work is good. Here in Ecclesiastes 4, he tells us, one of the reasons it's not good other than denying yourself the pleasures of life is that it can bring forth oppression. So Solomon's conclusion here is clear from verse 6. Verse 6 is the culmination of the the strife between these two views says one hand is full of rest sorry one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after win so he's saying instead of having two fists full of labor laboring tirelessly or two hands full of rest being a sluggard it is better to have one hand full of rest and the other full of labor It is far better for a person to settle for a simple and quiet life than one that is hectic and troubled. The call by Solomon here is to live a balanced life, a life of contentment. And we've seen that in Ecclesiastes. Solomon has already warned us not to live for the highs of life, those big triumphant moments but to find contentment in the Lord's providence and to to take joy in the simple things of life, the fact that we were able to enjoy a very good meal yesterday or to come to church this morning. We may not see those things as the highs of life, but those things are part of God's providence toward us, His goodness toward us, that we can assemble here in the house of the Lord to sing His praises. This is the ultimate blessing of God. Well, Dr. Sproul concludes of this passage, he says, contentment is the answer, being satisfied with enough, that is, what one hand can hold, and not living one's life for just a little more, two hands, or prizing idleness above all, folded hands, is the balance that enables human beings to navigate life well. It's being able to understand God's providence, and resting in God's gifts toward you. Looking at verses 7 through 12, we have another problem that Solomon brings up, which is of isolation. He says, "'Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. "'There was a certain man without a dependent, "'having neither a son nor a brother, "'yet there was no end to all his labor. "'Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches.' And he never asked, and for whom am I laboring or depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is, no, when there is not another to lift him up. Further, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, who can res- two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Now, Jay Adams calls this man that Solomon's talking about a miser. And a miser is someone who hoards his wealth and spends as little money as possible. In this particular instance, Solomon describes a person without an inheritor. It is a person who's decided to not pursue a wife or to pursue children just so he can hoard up all of the riches of life to himself he is a man who continues to labor tirelessly even though he already has more than he will ever need but he labors tirelessly to keep storing up riches his love is money Indeed, he's become so consumed with riches that he's forgotten that he has no one to leave it to. It's as if he thinks that those things that he's labored for tirelessly, that he can take it with him, or that it will benefit him at his time of death. Or perhaps he's not thinking that he will die at all, which is what all men do. His labor is for himself not for himself and others. What is the motivation for such a person? Is it prestige? Is it thinking that his money can save him someday? Is it a, a high seeing those numbers go up in the bank account? Why would he labor so tirelessly when he has more than he could ever need but has no one to give it to Solomon contrasts such a view by saying that two are better than one. Why is this the case? Why is two better than one? Well, it's the same reason we come together as a church family. It's so that we can edify and encourage one another to build each other up and to support one another. When the labor of a person isn't solely for for self-gratification but done for others, it becomes rewarding. But it extends this principle extends far past money. People need other people. People were made for that. God created us to be fellowshippers, fellowshippers, to be in fellowship with one another. Adam was to have fellowship with God. The first thing God did, he created Adam, and he communed with Adam. He walked with Adam. And when God saw that Adam did not have a companion, what did God do? He created a companion for Adam. He created Eve, a wife to love and to experience all of God's good gifts to him. So Solomon gives a few examples of this, of the... Of the uh, the benefits were examples on why we need one another, why we are not to be a, a miser, to be uh, isolated. The first person is a person who falls and he cannot get up by himself. It says here that he must rely on another person to help him up. Well, the miser has no one to help him up because he's worked tirelessly to push people away. The second example is two lying down to keep warm. He points out that one cannot keep himself warm, but two can. If you've ever been camping and you've laid in a very cold woods by yourself, you know that it gets very cold there. And it's always better to have another close by to keep warm. This is his point. Two is better than one. He points out that one cannot do it by himself where two can. The third example he gives is, if an enemy comes upon you, you stand a better chance if there are two of you than if there are only one of you. All of these are meant to illustrate the importance of having others in your life, who you can fellowship with, who you can encourage and be encouraged to rely upon to assist in times of trouble the miser does not have that because the miser has pushed everyone away so solomon warns here that the love of earthly pleasures passions can breed this in the heart so again a reflection is are we fellowshipping with the brothers finally in verses 13 through 16 solomon says a poor, wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction, for he has come out of prison to become, become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun, thronged to the side, and the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even those who will come later will not be happy with him. For this, too, is vanity and striving after wind. So now Solomon makes another little shift here to a theme that we are familiar with by now, which is wisdom and folly. And we're going to continue to talk about wisdom and folly over and over and over again. Put simply, he expresses here that it is better to be filled with wisdom than to be filled with stupidity. He's saying, don't be stupid, be wise. Be wise. The illustration here is a king who no longer listens to those around him. He has become wise in his own eyes, thinking that everyone around him is a fool. This is an incredibly dangerous place to be. Now, usually being an older person is a a sign of being wise. There is a lot of wisdom, there's a lot of experience there. The older person has much more life experience than someone who is young. However, in this case, Solomon's pointing out that the king has become foolish because he can no longer receive instruction. He can no longer listen to others. He thinks he knows everything. The Bible stresses that each person is to be teachable. And here in this passage, the king has not become teachable. He's become unteachable. It's quite plain from Proverbs 12 that whoever loves discipline loves knowledge but who, he who hates reproof is stupid. So the king who thinks himself wise, who no longer receives instruction, is not actually wise. Scripture says that he's a fool. In Proverbs thirteen eighteen, we read that poverty and disgrace come to him who ignore instruction, but whoever holds reproof is honored. So why is it that some people become unteachable? They think they know it all one word pride the one who will not receive instruction is not wise he is a fool that's the testimony of scripture to think that you know it all is prideful and you have become a fool proverbs 9 9 says of a a person who is genuinely wise give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. So you see the difference. The one who can no longer receive instruction isn't actually wise, he is a fool. But the one who does receive instruction becomes wiser still. You can teach a righteous man something and he will increase in learning. So this is the dichotomy that the Bible makes on. Uh, this simple teaching of of those who are teachable and unteachable. And there is a vast difference between the two. Solomon says it's better to have a, a young man who is teachable than an old fool. So all of these things are, again, the products of life under the sun. Pride, envy, jealousy. All of these things striving after wind. So, in summary... I think uh, one key thread throughout the whole chapter, Ecclesiastes 4, really is a call to be balanced in life. It's a call to be content in God's providence. Last week, all of chapter 3 was about God's providence and everything coming from His hand. And this week, it's about being content in that providence, not trying to have two hands full of work or two hands full of rest but to enjoy what God has given us. For those of us in authority, we're not to be oppressors, but we're to to lead with patience and kindness. You know, those things we call the fruit of the Spirit. We're to be filled with those things, and that's how we are to lead and be an example for others. We're to guard our hearts from envy and jealousy. We're to have patience and love and kindness toward one another. But we're not to be sluggards. We're not to be taskmasters. We're to be balanced in life. We're to be content in God's providence. Also, found here in this chapter is the clearest warning in Scripture that I know of against being a loner, against being isolated, against being a Christian who thinks that, well, this Christian life is all about me taking my bible living under a tree and having nothing to do with the church you know you hear so many times people say oh well i'm not done with god i'm just done with organized religion because i've been hurt and that that may be true people do get hurt but that doesn't mean that the way of the christian is isolation we must have one another we must love one another we cannot be recluse, else we will fall into many snares, and we will have no one to help us up. Finally, we ought to be teachable, ready to receive instruction. And I would suggest that we begin that that, uh, that path of instruction, learning to be teachable, by receiving Solomon's instruction here to be teachable. We must be teachable. We must be willing to listen to others. We can't live in echo chambers either. Everyone has differing opinions, and we must hear one another. We must learn to live with one another. So, that is the conclusion of chapter four. Any questions or comments? what you were talking about, but he had a sign (laughs) sign that said, a word to the wise is redundant. (laughs) (laughs) Word to the wise is redundant. Anyone else? No. um, The best ways to, um, it kind of talks about uh, stupidity versus wisdom, and then so what are the best ways where we can avoid filling ourselves with stupidity and then promoting wisdom yeah. being something that we're filling ourselves with? Yeah, by, by living on every word of God, specifically the Proverbs, the wisdom literature. Proverbs is so underappreciated. Reading through Proverbs will teach you to not be a fool. And that doesn't mean that you won't be a fool. You will still be a fool. But the point is to not be so foolish. It's to know what you are to do in life. And that, Proverbs gives you that, Ecclesiastes gives you that. It's a continual reminder of, of our place in life, that we are God's crea- creation, he is our creator, and we must learn from him. If we don't learn from him, we'll never know how to live this life. So you, you kill foolishness by realizing that you are a fool, and that you need wisdom and that you seek it in God's Word. So. And then, of course, the practical aspect of that is always tough because you can know, you can memorize every chapter of Proverbs and still fall into all of this. So, isolation you want to I had a friend who was offended, and she was really hurt by a church. And she decided not to go to church at all, and now she's steeped in the deep roots from roots movement. So, you walk away from the church and you're vulnerable to Someone who abandons the church will almost—it's almost a guarantee—that they will abandon Christ. Well, they have by not coming, not attending church, because Christ commands us. But that is the result of that. There, there will be a, a leaving to a severe uh, heretical movement. Yep. J.C. Ryle, in his book Holiness, I was reading a little while ago. He's talking about. You know, Christ is the head of the body of the church and so many people just want, you you wouldn't want a friend who's just a head, you know, sitting on your desk and yet so many people they say, I don't want any part of the church for this coming Christ. Uh, mm. That was a really good analogy. Yeah. yeah, that is. I think that kind of speaks to the um being unteachable. I mean, it's pride, really. A lot of in church I, I had a lady tell me, tell me last week and, the flea market you know well we are the church but that's always our possible I can have the church anywhere because we're the church but if you're not gathered with other believers you're really I mean you know you're the hand that's out here without the rest of the body but it's so prideful because I don't mean the church it's like I don't mean God in a sense I mean I know the church isn't God but I mean that's where Mm -hmm. he teaches us so I just think you tend to get so puffed up and you don't realize it I think one of the reasons that we hear that so, that's always been a theme of history, people thinking that, but one of the reasons it's so prevalent in our modern society is our modern churches. It's true, I don't need that. You know, I don't, I don't need the modern church. I need biblical Christianity, the, the teaching of scripture. I need to pray as God has taught us to pray, to come together. I need church discipline. I need the sacraments. I don't need a, Rock concert on Sundays. I like rock concerts. Yeah. She did. She said, "I don't believe in denominations." I'm like, "Well, uh, yeah, gotta believe in something." Well, she that's like know. someone I who says, "I don't have a worldview." World yeah. yeah, yeah. Most when people say they attend a non-denominational church, I'm like, "Oh, you attend a Baptist church." It. <laughs> it's basically what it is, but yeah. Anything else? Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for being able to gather. Uh, we thank you that you've given us a, a family to, to love, a church family, to, so that we could bear each other's burdens, so that we can love one another, so that we can lift each other up and we can protect each other from sin and uh, the pains of living under the sun. We pray that you would help us not to be isolated, help us to be even-handed in our lives, uh, help us to be kind and gracious toward one another to not be uh, oppressive, but to be vindicators of those who are oppressed as you are the vindicators of those who are oppressed. Father, and we, we pray that you would help us to be wise, keep us from our own foolishness, help us to store up your words of truth and of life that we may know how we can better please you. And uh, Now we ask that you prepare our hearts for worship, prepare us for uh, receiving your word and recognizing that uh, everything that we do is for your glory and that our prayer this morning would be that our worship would, would be pleasing and be glorifying to you. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.